Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. Uh, for our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. And, of course, our program will be posted on the Heritage homepage for everyone's future reference as well. Leading our discussion is Rachel Gressler. She serves as Senior Policy Analyst in Economics and Entitlements in our Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity. She researches and analyzes many issues in the economics field. She is here today to focus on federal tax, she focuses, excuse me, on federal tax policy, including cost estimates and dynamic situ- simulations uh, that take into account many aspects of business and personal taxes. Before joining us here at Heritage, she was a senior economist on the staff of the Joint Economic Committee of the Congress for more than six years. She earned her master's degrees in both economics and public policy from Georgetown University. And we should tell them you are the proud parent of six children now. Yes. Please join me in welcoming our good friend, Rachel Gressler. Rachel. Thank you, John, Um, and thank you, everybody, for being here today. We have an all-star panel lined up, and I'm really excited to hear from them and also to have a discussion later and some time for questions from the audience. Puerto Rico is in the midst of an economic and financial crisis. Even before Hurricane Maria devastated the island, which is home to roughly 3 million U.S. citizens, Puerto Rico's economy was crumbling. The island's GDP had declined in 10 of the last 11 years, and it's on track to decline 8% in 2018. Puerto Rico has also accumulated over $70 billion in debt in a roughly $100 billion economy. And in 2015, it began defaulting on that debt. Faced with a financial and economic crisis and virtually no access to credit, Congress stepped in, and in 2016, it passed the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act, known as PROMESA. Since that time, the island has been under the oversight of a Financial Oversight Management Board. That board has the difficult task of comprehensively evaluating Puerto Rico's economy, its finances, the island's labor market, and its governance. And it has recommended policies and budget Um, steps that will hopefully put the island on track towards growth. Although the board has some authority over the island's finances, many of the board's recommendations cannot take effect without the legislature's approval. This is something that has yet to happen and which faces some opposition, particularly with regards to the board's proposed labor market reforms. 
We're extremely fortunate today to have with us two members of Puerto Rico's Oversight Board, as well as economic experts um, on the, and the island's resident commissioner will be joining us later. We'll give a brief overview of what's happening in Puerto Rico and what needs to happen to turn the island's economy around. So each of our panelists are going to begin with some opening remarks, and then we will have our keynote address from Resident Commissioner Jennifer Gonzalez-Colon. Um, following Ms. Colon's remarks, I will moderate a short panel discussion, and then we'll open it up to questions. So first up, I'd like to introduce our panelists here. We have Mr. Jose Carrion. Mr. Carrion is the chair of Puerto Rico's um, Oversight Board, and he has been the president and principal partner of Hub International since 2012. Prior to that, Mr. Carrion served in multiple positions dealing with risk management, including as the chairman of Puerto Rico's Worker Compensation Program. Mr. Carrion received his BA from the University of Pennsylvania and his Master's in Business Administration from the College of Insurance. Next up, we have Dr. Ann Kruger. She is the Senior Research Professor of International Economics at the School for Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. Dr. Kruger is so well-renowned that I, can't, I could spend this whole time just talking about her accomplishments, but in order to keep things short, I'm going to summarize. Um, in addition to the many research and teaching positions that Dr. Kruger has filled, she was the first Deputy Managing Director of the IMF and Vice President for Economics and Research at the World Bank. As it relates to our discussion today, Dr. Kruger was also commissioned by the Government Development Bank of Puerto Rico to produce what has become known as the Kruger Report. In this 2015 report, Dr. Kruger assessed Puerto Rico's macroeconomic situation, analyzed its future prospects, and recommended policies to improve the island's outlook. Dr. Kruger holds a BA from Oberlin College and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin. Next up, we have Dr. Andrew Biggs, who is also a member of Puerto Rico's Oversight Management Board. And he's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies social security reform, state and local government pensions, and public sector versus private sector pay and benefits. Dr. Biggs previously served as the principal deputy commissioner of the Social Security Administration and as an associate director of the White House National Economics Council. He was also a staff member of President George W. Bush's Commission to Strengthen Social Security. Dr. Biggs holds a bachelor's degree from Queen's University in Belfast in Northern Ireland, along with master's degrees from Cambridge University and the University of London, and a PhD from the London School of Economics. Next up, we have Douglas Holtzikin, who is the president of the American Action Forum. Dr. Holtzikin began his career as a professor both at Columbia University and Syracuse Universities. Since then, he's held multiple policy positions, including roles in both George H.W. and George W. Bush's administrations on the Council of Economic Advisors. He was also director of the Congressional Budget Office and director of economic policy for John McCain's presidential campaign. He's a commissioner on the Congressionally Chartered Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. And on the end, we have, I'm sorry, I did this out of order here, so Dr. Eakins on the end. Moving back one, we have Javier Ortiz. Javier is the executive director of FixPuertoRico.org, which is a Puerto Rico recovery initiative that aims to educate and inform both the public um, and private stakeholders to help recouple Puerto Rico's economy to the rest of the nation and hopefully create a path to economic prosperity. 
Mr. Ortiz is also a partner at Falcon Cyber Investments, where he leads technical due diligence and ongoing innovation. He has over 27 years of experience working on technology, business, and public sector issues, and he served on the transition team for President Donald J. Trump. So we're going to go ahead and kick things off here. You're welcome to stay seated to give your remarks or to come up to the podium if you'd like. And first up, we're going to have um, Jose. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I'm honored to be here uh, and honored to be part of this, uh, this panel. Uh, my name is Jose Carrion. I'm chairman of the Financial Oversight and Management Board for Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico has been mired in an economic and demographic downward spiral for over a decade. The economy is $16 billion smaller in real terms, and the population is some 680,000 smaller than it was in 2005. These trends present before Hurricane Maria are projected to continue. Today, nearly 40% of the population lives below the federal poverty level, Almost 50% are dependent on Medicaid for health care, and more than 35% are dependent on the Federal Nutritional Assistance Program. Meanwhile, over that time, the Commonwealth's outstanding debt and pensions liability grew to over $120 billion. These pre-Maria problems are neither new nor temporary, but longstanding and structural. Businesses operate in a harsh climate with poor infrastructure, expensive and unreliable electricity, a bloated bureaucratic government that provides poor service at a high price, and a struggling population that participates in the formal economy at a remarkably low rate. The government has also had a budgeting problem for years with lower revenues and higher expenses than annually projected, creating a growing general, de general fund deficit. Even before Maria, the primary deficit excluding debt service was growing at ex and expected to reach $3.5 billion by 2021 and $4.8 billion by 2026. Worse yet, Puerto Rico had been financing the deficit with debt so the actual fiscal deficit is significantly larger and less sustainable. In the midst of these protracted demographic fiscal and debt crises, Hurricane Maria caused unprecedented and catastrophic damage to the island, its people, and its businesses. While Puerto Rico will benefit from temporary economic stimulus from federal disaster relief spending and a temporary reprieve from debt service as a result of PROMESA, we must make now the structural changes necessary for a new growing, resilient economy before fiscal imbalances inevitably return. But before I do that, uh, before I move on to the solutions that the board is, in, is promoting and implementing, I would like to say something about the tragic loss of life that the people of Puerto Rico suffered as a consequence of Maria and about the federal government's response in the wake of the disaster. I was on the island during and after the storm, and I am saddened that some people in Puerto Rico have utilized this very real tragedy for political purposes. We need to study this issue further so that we can learn more about the tragedy and incorporate policies on the lessons learned. But I regret that many people are not speaking, for example, about how the publicly owned power company is responsible for much of that loss of life. This poorly run monopoly used by politicians as an employment agency and dominated by a left-wing labor union did not adequately prepare Puerto Rico for Maria and did not respond competently in the wake of the disaster. Power is everything. Businesses need power. Hospitals need power. Dialysis patients need power. Critically ill people need power. And all residents of Puerto Rico know or know of people who passed away because of the power outage that went on for months. Thankfully, we are aligned with the current territorial government, which inherited this mess in moving forward electric power transformation by putting power generation in private hands, amongst other measures. Further, I can state categorically that in my personal experience, and I was present in meetings with high-ranking federal officials, that at no time did I feel that those officials failed to offer Puerto Rico all the resources available to the federal government. 
And on more than one occasion, they reiterated President Trump's desire to be there for the people of Puerto Rico, for which I am personally grateful to the President. As for solutions, let me say that the central government's new fiscal plan, if implemented correctly, will put Puerto Rico on the path to achieving the specific objectives mandated by PROMESA of, one, reaching fiscal equilibrium and recurrent balance budgets, two, restructuring the debt in a fair and sustainable manner, three, reestablishing access to the capital markets at reasonable rates, four, funding essential services, five, ensuring long-term viability of the pension system, and six, restoring economic opportunity for all on the island. The plan also mandates structural reforms and fiscal measures essential to restoring growth, opportunity, and prosperity to the people and businesses of Puerto Rico and to making the government more efficient, effective, and responsive to its citizens, such as human capital and labor reform, promote participation in the formal labor force through flexible labor regulations, the implementation of an earned income tax credit, benefits welfare to workfare reform, and providing comprehensive workforce development opportunities ease of doing business reform, to promote economic activity by reducing obstacles to start and sustain businesses, as I mentioned, power sector reform, to provide low-cost and reliable energy through the transformation of the local utility and the establishment uh, and, and fortification of the independent energy regulator. Tax initiatives, to reduce corporate, individual, and sales and use taxes and eliminate non-revenue generating incentives and subsidies while maintaining revenue neutrality and enhancing tax compliance to broaden the tax base increase tax revenues, reduce fraud, and improve fairness. And from comprehensive pension reform to improve the financial stability of public employees' retirement funds and ensuring the payment of pensions. Governmental right-sizing to make it more efficient and less costly. Reduction of appropriations to lower the fiscal burden on the central government by decreasing appropriations to municipalities and the University of Puerto Rico. Healthcare reform to reduce healthcare to cost inflation through a comprehensive new healthcare model that prioritizes quality relative to cost and the establishment of the office of the CEO. Sadly, even with a robust implementation of these reforms and measures, Puerto Rico still cannot afford to meet all of its contractual debt obligations. So in addition to the adoption of these pro-growth reforms, Puerto Rico needs a comprehensive, fair, and sustainable restructuring of its debt. It must do it now while it has the temporary benefits of significant federal disaster relief spending and a stay on debt service. The Oversight Board supports and has been involved in the federal court-sponsored mediation that has brought together different stakeholders to, negate, to negotiate mutually agreeable solutions, and we are optimistic that the mediation process yields the results. I'll take any questions afterwards. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, although, as uh, Jose Carrion has already indicated, we are not in the happiest of situations. So uh, there's kind of a double-edged sword there. Um, I want to stress a couple of points. You, from experience all over the world, when policies for economic activity are sufficiently distorted, as Puerto Rico's have been, uh, there has to be some kind of an adjustment program which normally carries great pain because the adjustment requires at the same time uh, fiscal restoring fiscal balance. Puerto Rico right now has an unusual opportunity in that the monies that have been allocated for that purpose can be spent to support the economy as those reforms are going on, which would greatly, greatly, greatly ease the transition process 
So in that sense, Puerto Rico has an opportunity now, which if it realizes it, in my view, could make a huge difference going forward, uh, because in going forward, it would not have the same kinds of handicaps that it has right now and has had for the past at least decade, if not more. Many of the policies that have been adopted are anti-growth big time. Uh, the 38% uh, labor force participation rate contrasted with 63% on the mainland, 38 versus 63, think of it. Many people, of course, are in the informal sector. They are not uh, doing things in the formal sector. They're getting very low incomes, and they're very often living off welfare, which they can collect while still doing menial chores. But that means in labor force that is not being used, is not productive, and so on, and things can change there. And for economic growth, that almost has to happen. Some of the regulations are... Um, very, very, very difficult to understand. One requires that no employee can be asked to work any more than eight hours in any 24-hour period. If you think of from midnight to mid midnight, that might make sense, except what about restaurant workers when they want to shift them from afternoon shift to morning shift? They can't do it the next day because it's within that period, which has been one of the many things, and only one of the smaller ones, handicapping the tourism industry, which is competitive with Florida, with Mexico, uh, and with, other, with the other Caribbean islands. Uh, there, there are many other things that I'm not even mentioning uh, that, that go in that same direction. The minimum wage is a $7 and what have you an hour that's here on the mainland. Uh, the minimum wage in Mexico, remember I said $7.50 an hour, is $6 a day in manufacturing. How are Puerto Rican industries going to compete? Well, the answer has to be a better trade, more productive labor force in significant part. Uh, and yet what happens is that many of the folks go into this informal sector and don't get the training or the skills they need. And one of the things that needs doing is getting better apprenticeship programs and better other programs that will enable people to find more productive employment on the island at the same time as some of the restrictions that make no sense are removed. So that there's a great deal that can be done there. And the opportunity to seize it is now. Because if it happens, or if it is attempted, say, five years from now when the federal money is all gone, and if it is tried at that time, it will be much more painful than now to affect the transition, which does not need to be overnight, but it needs to be started yesterday. And all of the objections to it seem to be to be missing the point. The labor market, in my judgment, is the essential issue because people are what are the most productive assets we have. Puerto Rico is a beautiful island. It ought to be the Singapore, so to speak, of the Western Hemisphere. A good headquarters for Spanish-speaking, and for Portuguese for that matter, speaking Latin America, for companies that want to do business, especially from Europe, but also from Asia, in both North and South America. There should be, and there is a good group of people who speak English, but as was already mentioned, there should be many more. This is not something that should be uh, cut out of the education program, and yet it has been. There are a number of these things that are just simply obvious in the way. Changing them is not going to be that easy. Changing them without support from the federal government will be even harder. That support is now, and if it's simply blown on welfare programs that do not increase productivity, do not enable people to do more productive work, uh, it's going to fail. Uh, the other thing I'd just say is that the experience everywhere with growth has been, or say, let me turn it around, the experience in other countries that have confronted Problems like Puerto Rico's, first off, their countries, they have two instruments that Puerto Rico does not have, monetary and exchange rate policy. That means that re getting into the other areas where Puerto Rico can do something is even more important because they don't have those other 
tools with which to work. And to do that, they are going to need to shape up. When they do, they've got huge advantages. U.S. law and uh, the system that we have in that sense is good. For, the monetary system is good. The U.S. dollar is a very handy uh, currency. The fact that you can go back and forth to the mainland without all of these things are desirable. But they are advantages that right now are, I'm afraid, largely wasted. So I think that at this time, Puerto Rico has a marvelous opportunity to do some of the things that need doing. And that opportunity isn't going to last forever. The danger is the money will be spent and the needs to change will still be there so that when that's recognized, things will be far more painful in the transition. Thank you. Thanks. Um, uh, Anne just mentioned the idea that Puerto Rico could be like a, a Singapore of the Caribbean, a, 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 a prosperous international uh, place where the economy is thriving. It's interesting that in the 1950s, uh, government officials from Singapore <coughs> visited Puerto Rico to get their advice on how to modernize and push their economy forward. Uh, in 1960, the British magazine The Economist said that Puerto Rico had done or accomplished a century's worth of economic progress in only a decade. So there's a, there's a history in Puerto Rico of, of making strong economic growth, strong economic reforms. At the same time, if you go from what The Economist said in 1960 to a 2006 article in The Economist, which was headlined Welfare Island, where it talks about the difficulties in, in Puerto Rico, in particular focusing on the difficulties in the labor market, where the employment rates um, are not simply lower than in the mainland United States, as, as Anne noted. They're lower than anywhere in the Caribbean. <coughs> Indeed, if you look at World Bank data, they're lower than almost any place else on Earth. Of, uh, I think, 230 uh, jurisdictions tracked by the uh, World Bank, the labor force participation rate in Puerto Rico somewhere on 225th. And the important thing is that is not a, a function of the business cycle. It's not a function of the recession uh, that has taken place in Puerto Rico since uh, 2006. It is something that's been in place for as long as the World Bank has tracked data, going back almost three decades. So you have what we call a structural problem. And a structural problem which is built into the economy needs to be addressed through structural reforms. The board has taken that view consistently from the beginning. Indeed, if you look at the PROMESA legislation, it includes a sense of Congress that the, 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 the oversight board help enact structural reforms, long-term structural reforms to help improve economic growth. And that's the sorts of things that, that the board has been trying to do. In, in some things, I think the, the board has been very successful to date working in helping uh, balance the budget, in particular on the, on the issue where I've been involved the most, uh, public sector pensions. We had pension systems which were you know, literally out of money in far worse shape than you'd find in a place like Illinois or New Jersey. And, uh, but we're, we've implemented or we will implement, you know, modest progressive changes to benefits for current retirees, but also a shift to a, a pension model to be more financially sustainable going forward. In the short term, that may, the gains from that may not be apparent. Long term, the gains are very, very real for Puerto Rico and for its budget and for its capacity to sustain itself. At the same time, though, we need changes that are going to strengthen not just the government's budget, but strengthen the underlying economy. Because the, the, the reason uh, that Puerto Rico has faced so many difficulties is the underlying economy is not nearly as strong as it can be. Uh, the interesting thing is we, uh, Anne is obviously a, a prestigious uh, 
economist, a, a former top official at the IMF and the World Bank, um, you know, and she's argued for liberalizing the labor market. We have Doug Holtzikin here, a former Congressional Budget Office uh, director, um, who I know from his previous written work will argue similarly that the labor market needs to be to be freed up, and yet at the same time, often. You know, if I speak to people in Puerto Rico about these issues, it's as if you're telling them that gravity doesn't apply. Or it's, it, it is arguments that they, they simply can't, you know, process that, that, a, that an open, free labor market will, instead of, there's a perception this is going to harm people on the island, in the reality, and particularly over the long term, it'll benefit them. And so I think that the, the important thing here is just as Singapore they sent their government officials to uh, Puerto Rico in the 1950s to learn how to, uh, to boost their economy, I think it's important that policymakers in Puerto Rico think about the lessons from abroad. And these are the sorts of things that, that Anne has talked about. These are the sorts of things that the, the Oversight Board has talked about in its, um, in its uh, fiscal plan in a more recent document that we gave to the uh, the government in, in talking about the need to have a freer and more open labor market in Puerto Rico. And there's evidence from around the globe that the sorts of policies that, that Puerto Rico has, they tend to, uh, they may have some visible uh, benefits to certain people. If you have a job, you have very generous uh, mandatory paid leave, paid vacation. You have uh, protections against being fired. You have a mandatory Christmas bonus. But this creates what is an insiders versus outsiders problem. The people who have jobs are, are pretty well treated, but there's so many people who can't find jobs. And I think there's a perception in the government that, well, you know, we, we don't want to hurt people. We, uh, what we have is better than, better than the alternative. But you see people in Puerto Rico voting with their feet to go to jobs that don't offer these same protections. They, they either go to informal labor market where they get no protections whatsoever. They go to a place like Florida where, where the, the government regulations of the labor market are so much uh, less onerous. And what this shows is you're, even if you're protecting certain people, you're leaving other people with very few options to support themselves in, in the island in which they're born and which they want, want to raise their families. So I think it's just important for, for policymakers in, in Puerto Rico to think about lessons from abroad, think about the potential to make the island what, what it was uh, when you look back to the 1950s, when things were growing quickly. And so I, th I think it's just, it's, it's really just trying to be a little more open, open thinking and fresh thinking about where things can go on the island. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Uh, well, I want to thank Rachel for the chance to be here today and to, to join this illustrious panel. And I, and I want to thank those serving on the board for their service. I, I think it should be recognized as uh, an enormous commitment of their time and uh, a valuable offer of their expertise. Um, uh, as Andrew mentioned, um, I am going to repeat the call for liberalizing the Puerto Rican labor market. I, that, there's just an enormous amount of evidence around the globe in the United States that you can move the labor force participation rate with better public policy. In the U.S., we've, we've think, done things like the, the EITC. Uh, you can reform the social safety net, not to, to diminish the welfare of individuals, but to take away negative incentives to work. Uh, the work of Casey Mulligan, for example, at the University of Chicago about the design of, of the Affordable Care Act is just a stark reminder that what good intentions aren't enough, that you actually have to have policies that incentivize participation and then 
allowing people to 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 work on the the margin of more hours and less hours and the the restrictions on the on the Puerto Rican businesses uh, that that Andrew ticked through are all uh, just a whole list of things that that harm that and so the, the labor market needs to be the focus uh, the the benchmark is not what was the labor market like when Puerto Rico was growing in the 60s the benchmarks Florida that's the competitor and um, uh, there has to be a realistic assessment of can you compete with Florida and 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 make that a way that you th you frame the the policy choices again and again and again? Um, I I've been at this a long time. Um, uh, I first was asked to study Puerto Rico in 1989 when I worked at the George H W Bush uh, White House. Uh, I, I looked at it again very closely when uh, Governor Governor Fortunio was in office. Um, we're, we're back again. And, and there is a lot of this that that sounds oh here we, it's exactly the same problems oh my god, and it's important that that not be uh, taken as to characterize a sense of hopelessness. This is a tremendous opportunity, and there is nothing that inherently stops Puerto Rico from performing much much better. And I think it's uh, uh, in the interests of every American to to help Puerto Rico do that. Um, these these are our Literally, our brothers and sisters, our, our, our fellow citizens, and, and this is a tremendous chance to, ha to have improved public policy, improve the welfare of three million people, and, and do so relatively quickly. And it's, it's very important that it not be characterized as a financial problem. This is, this is not about bondholders. This is not about government budgets. I mean, I love that stuff, but I have no soul. Um, this is, this is uh, uh, about the capacity of Puerto Ricans to do what the United States has always promised. Uh, achieve your hopes and dreams through through your hard work and efforts and setting up institutions and policies that, that support that. Um, I just want to note for the record that the, the labor market will not be enough. There are some other things out there that we have a lot of evidence on that will help. Uh, it, you know, The Jones Act, for example, is just uh, a tax on the existence of Puerto Rico. It's just hideous public policy. That's the best thing I can say about it. It needs to go away. Um, the, the energy markets, you know, the U.S. has experienced tremendous improvements in its domestic energy markets. So go back to, to when I was uh, uh, driving around as uh, a 16-year-old and, and the U.S. energy markets in the 70s, they were ridiculous and, and um, uh, highly monopolistic, government-controlled. Take that evidence, go to Puerto Rico, produce a, a better power sector in particular, energy markets in general. Uh, that'd be important. We have a lot of evidence that tax reform is, can improve the allocation of workers across the economy, capital in the economy, uh, can and support faster economic growth. Take that evidence and, and, and apply it in Puerto Rico. Uh, I think a comprehensive approach is the key. And I, I think it would be really interesting to just watch the outcome of the, the experiment the Trump administration is running on, on the regulatory front. Uh, quietly... I think to, to little public uh, acknowledgement, they have transformed the regulatory state. Um, the numbers are stark. So, you know, I run the American Action Forum, which is a think tank. This is a think tank. Ours is an over-21 daycare center. But we, 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 um, we also have an intern program where we bring, you know, aspiring young minds to Washington, and we make them read the Federal Register every day. Some die, and you get a new red uh, intern. It's okay. Um, but it's stunning. The Obama administration issued a costly regulation at an average rate of 1.1 per day for eight straight years. And their total self-reported cost to complying with those regulations was $890 billion, over $100 billion a year in regulatory burden. 
From his inauguration to the end of fiscal 2017, the Trump administration added $5 billion to that total. They shut it down. And they did something even more dramatic. The Office of Management Budget put the 24 regulatory agencies on literally a budget. They said, in fiscal 2018, you can add this much to the cost of complying with regulations. And all of those numbers are zeros or negative numbers. The most important thing, though, is they are now on a budget. You will identify every regulation, you will identify its costs, and if you measure something, you can manage it. I think Puerto Rico would be well advised to think about that and, and take a good hard look at the regulatory state, not with the idea that all regulations are bad and need to be just tossed, but to simply manage that, re that regulatory state in a systemic, intelligent way. And I think the, those kinds of reforms, whether it's tax, regulatory, labor market, offer Puerto Rico tremendous hope. And I, and I hope what we see this time is, is something different than what I saw in the, in the 80s and 90s and is actually a, a, a course change for Puerto Rico. Thank you. Um, so, uh, thank you. I, I just can't um, thank Rachel enough for bringing this forward. This really, uh, as I as we get together with folks that worry about Puerto Rico, this is uh, an amazing opportunity. The work that Jose um, and uh, Andrew are doing on the board is really important. This, this big, big. Um, of big importance to the country because it, this, this is about our fellow Americans. This, uh, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, I have a, a glass half full point of view on this. Uh, Congress uh, in the last four, uh, 36 months or so has been focused on Puerto Rico. PROMESA I think is one of the uh, most uh, the, probably a great thing to start thinking about how to reform Puerto Rico as a whole, bring some of the ideas that all the folks uh, have um, presented to many of us here and now and before. And if you think about what we're looking for, and certainly from the private sector point of view, is certainty. We want to know that the rules that are put in place today are going to be rules that are going to create jobs, that are going to be sustainable jobs, that are going to be a modern point of view. And when we talk about, you know, Puerto Rico could be the Singapore or the Caribbean, that's absolutely right. It requires Congress to act. And Congress acted first with PROMESA. Try to, I view it as a, try to get a hold of, try to understand how big the debt is, how much of a systemic problem that is. But Congress needs to continue to act. Uh, Puerto Rico cannot enact laws to create jobs. They cannot, uh, Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rico government cannot unilaterally open markets to other parts of the world. It, it has to come from Congress. Congress has to provide those tools. Um, the Congresswoman is here. I know that she's been leading uh, in working with uh, many members on the Democratic and the uh, Democrats and Republicans with the president and with other folks to try to make sure that everything that happens within Congress brings that certainty that is needed. The private sector is doing some of that. Uh, here recently, uh, a gentleman by the name of Rick Elias, uh, he lives in North Carolina now, uh, grew up in Puerto Rico. Uh, he started something called Forward 787. He's going to train folks. He's, uh, he's, he, he's a believer. Um, 
in training, how to get folks together, make sure that they have a whole bunch of skill sets to do that. And he has a great story to tell. He, he, he was on the plane that landed in the Hudson. So when you, when you think about how he's looking at the world now, and he's trying to have a major impact from the private sector with very little government involvement, train folks, and bring them back to hopefully Puerto Rico or somewhere else where they can be contributors from the private sector point of view is of great importance. Um, all the details that you've heard from all these experts are really important. Uh, what we are going to continue to be focused on is making sure that Congress uh, is engaged and involved. It doesn't make any sense for Puerto Rico to be a foreign tax jurisdiction within the tax law and yet be a domestic jurisdiction for everything else. This is the 21st century, and the people who live in Puerto Rico are not some kind of something different. You know, we can go back to maybe the insular cases where the uh, Supreme Court said that they were savages and they were never really intended to be part of the United States. I would argue that uh, Justice Sotomayor's uh, ancestors may have a different point of view, but that's, you know, maybe maybe somebody will take a case to the Supreme Court. It doesn't make any sense for us to continue to treat our fellow Americans under the U.S. flag differently. Thank you. I would like to go to the mics on now. First, we're honored to have with us today um, Puerto Rico's resident commissioner, um, Jennifer Gonzalez-Colón. Ms. Gonzalez-Colón was elected in 2016 as Puerto Rico's representative to the U.S. Congress, also known as the resident commissioner. In doing so, she became the first woman ever to hold the office. A lifelong Republican and an activist for Puerto Rican statehood, Ms. Gonzalez-Colón entered public office in 2002 in a special election and became the youngest member at the time of Puerto Rico's House of Representatives. She quickly rose through the ranks um, to become both the Speaker of the House and also the Minority Leader. Her priorities include spearheading the economic recovery in Puerto Rico and achieving statehood for the island. Ms. Gonzalez-Colón is a member of the Republican Policy Committee the Speaker's Intergovernmental Affairs Task Force, and she sits on committees of Veterans Affairs, Small Business, and Natural Resources. She also chairs the Puerto Rico Economic Growth Caucus. Representative Gonzalez-Colón is a product of the Puerto Rican public school system, and she holds both a Juris Doctor's and Master of Laws degree. Thank you so much, Resident Commissioner, for joining us today, and we're looking forward to your remarks. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you, all of you, for, for the opportunity to be here and address uh, this crowd. And first of all, thank you, all the panelists, for you know discussing an issue that is, is, a, is, a, is the most important issue for Puerto Rico right, right now at this time. I think we've been uh, an example or a symbol of disaster uh, during the last uh, three years. First economic disaster, and, and now, of course, uh, Hurricanes Irma and Maria. So all this crisis, I think, is a great opportunity uh, to change things. And I do agree uh, with Javier uh, on his remarks that Congress is watching. 
but also Congress got to have some responsibility in terms of providing the tools uh, to make their economic decisions uh, a wise one and immediate ones. Um, as I was uh, sworn in as a member of Congress, I've been working with the private sector coalition from the island, uh, both sides of the aisle here in, in Washington. And I think uh, it's, it's having the expertise of this group of people uh, will lead us to make those changes. Of course, there's been uh, a lot of situation for 100 years. Puerto Rico has been part of the U.S., but uh, we are not. We have not reached the same level of either political or economic development according to the U.S. Census. And just to give you some uh, points on that, the median household income in Puerto Rico is $19,000. Uh, when you have half of that of the next lowest state, which is Mississippi, 39,000. Uh, 19,000, 39,000, the difference between being a state and territory. And then you have the poverty rate is over 43.5%. Uh, that's more than double the highest poverty uh, level in the next state, which is Mississippi, with 21.9%. Uh, so why we are having those numbers? Why is the level of poverty? Why the level of um, <coughs> medium household income is so low. Of course, there are many reasons. For one instance, we are being part of the U.S. tax code as a domestic. But for other reasons, we are considered as a foreign country. So we need to change that kind of perspective on, on the island. It, and as a matter of fact, when Congress did uh, their um, report on PROMESA in 2016, uh, there were more than 40 recommendations uh, to change federal laws that treat Puerto Rico different uh, as a state and as a territory. And we should address uh, those recommendations immediately. And that's the reason I've been filing those bills that were part of those recommendations, most of them unanimous, unanimously uh, consented by Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate, and some of them that were not an agreement, but they were part of the study. And uh, we've been filing those kind of bills trying to get traction. And um, the last one, it's one that uh, Chairman Hatch in the Senate uh, filed with Senator Marco Rubio. Um, and we actually did the same thing in the House. So we, we have uh, both, uh, uh, both recommendations. There are pro-businesses and, and trying to stimulate investment in the island and to have growth and, and private enterprise. One of the uh, HR 5925. 75, which is the Puerto Rico Economic Empowerment Act. Uh, this includes some of the provision by the task force, and we have both the uh, same bill in the House and in the Senate. Uh, that is a tax relief that consists of a two-year payroll tax break for employees in Puerto Rico, cutting payroll taxes uh, in half, 3.1%, and uh, that will uh, have great earning power directly uh, of the for workers in, in, during that period. Of course, uh, having the equal treatment in federal child tax credit, and as you believe it or not, Puerto Rico do participate of the child tax credit when you have three kids or more, but not the first and the second one. So that's the kind of policies we need to change. Why Puerto Rico is under the rule of having three or more kids? I don't know if that was part of the provision, trying to have more kids in Puerto Rico at the time and then uh, provide them for, for that kind of credit, but not for the first and the second one. Uh, I've been asking the same question to members of Congress that they, uh, to this time, they don't even know the answer. Um, the second one 
the earned income tax credit. Uh, I do believe, and as Governor Fortunio did in the past, uh, we need to improve a way to get out of the uh, uh, welfare. And, and, and to do that, we need to provide the tools for people to work and have, of course, a fair share of, of, of their earnings. Um, those two bills, I, I, I do believe, are important in terms of having uh, provisions and tools. The other one is having statistics. As you believe it or not, Puerto Rico is not part of all statistics that are collected by the U.S. Census. So many of the federal programs that are applied to the rest of the states and to Puerto Rico, they do not have the information regarding the island. And for that reason, many of the formulas, many of the allocations that are made by Congress or by the federal statutes need to be in a differential mode, either on a grant or by the discretion of the head of the agency, of the cabinet member. Those kind of things are, are low-hanging fruits that we should change. Uh, there's a bill that we file collecting all the data and allowing Puerto Rico to be part of that kind of uh, 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 research information that is collected from the rest of the states, uh, but not for Puerto Rico. And we can talk about the differences even with that kind of data uh, with Virgin Islands. I mean, they receive some kind of the data that provide them uh, with higher FMR uh, uh, than us. Uh, but as a territory, we do have uh, kind of the half of the chair uh, they're receiving. That, that, that's just in housing. Um, the other goals that we need to have is we need to move uh, to a more permanent long-term uh, development goals. And uh, we managed to include uh, with the administration, I'm grateful for the administration and members of Congress, because we allocate more than $30 billion after the hurricane. More than $30 billions of dollars. I mean, that's the biggest amount ever Puerto Rico has received from the federal government in our history. But of course, we were, we were struck by a hurricane that was terrible itself, and we will need more uh, in terms of uh, doing the rebuilding. But those funds will just help rebuild the basic infrastructure and uh, the public services after the emergency. What are going to be the agenda uh, for the rest of the infrastructure that is deeply needed uh, to maintain a level of, of opportunities uh, on the island? We managed to include the opportunity zones um, provision uh, during the last um, bipartisan bill, and that's a provision that will provide for the island opportunity and investment uh, that is mostly needed uh, at this time when other states need to comply with the 25 uh, uh Reading census, Puerto Rico, the whole island is almost included directly uh, with the IRS, so we don't need the certification to, to comply with that. Uh, so we need to take advantage of that provision that has just recently uh, been signed uh, by the president. The other measures is sometimes when we talk that Puerto Rico is open for business, we forget uh, that Puerto Rico is part of America. Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. So investing in Puerto Rico is investing in the U.S. And creating jobs in Puerto Rico are creating American jobs. And that's something that um, before the hurricane was not clear. I think after the hurricane, people know that that's uh, our reality. I think PROMESA created uh, that bipartisan um, congressional task force uh, with some measures to, uh, to re-energize the island economy. Uh, we need uh, to look forward to uh, develop those tools. One of those is 
you know, you were talking about laborers. The unemployment rate in Puerto Rico right now is 9%, 9.9 last April. Uh, the lowest it's been in years. It's always up to 14%. Um, but, you know, the, the, the U.S., we get less than 3.5% of unemployment. So there's a big gap of difference. Uh, labor participation in Puerto Rico at April was 40.4% last April. Uh, has been there below this number since 2013. Um, so that that can tell you that the private sector needs to be energized and uh, with some regulatory uh, provisions, and that's the reason we are supporting some legislation in small business area uh, that treats, again, Puerto Rico differently uh, to, to the U.S. Uh, wrapping up, I, I, I just think that studies from scholars that like Tomex Hexner and Arthur Laffer have repeatedly called attention to the need of the private sector enterprise-driven economy in Puerto Rico um, and changed the policies uh, about, about measuring uh, the returns of investment in, in the island. Those bills, among others, I can give you a list of, of all the bills that we've been filing, uh, will, will help us to provide some tools uh, but we need also to stimulate uh, the uh, different economic sectors, like having like kind of change in properties between U.S. and Puerto Rico, and that's the reason we file HR 5430 that provide that kind of a fairness act. Why? Because for that kind of provision, Puerto Rico is considered as a foreign country, uh, not as a domestic. The other one is the Phil Puerto Rico Film Television uh, Act. Another provision that we can uh, take advantage of because for that reason we are considered as a foreign country and we should be considered as a domestic. So with that I agree with Javier's point, uh, point here. Um, of course we can talk about different measures. I'm currently working both of the aisle with the economic development for distress zones proposal. Um, that will focus on private enterprise job creation uh, with areas of extreme unemployment, low incomes, not just in Puerto Rico, but in other jurisdictions uh, over the U.S. And the target of a private sector becoming strong um, is it's the reason we, we need to have, I mean, a, a bigger tax base on the island. Uh, people were living after the hurricane. How we can bring those people back? How we can continue to have uh, our economy uh, being more active uh, on the island? And the island's economic decay is an example, in my perspective, of the failure of the welfare state in terms of policies that government picking winners and losers uh, in different areas to preferences uh, to steer the direction of the economy. So we've got opportunity right now and I, I hope this, this panel can, can uh, be uh, very open in terms of what are going to be those tools and how we can achieve uh, fullness of equal rights and responsibilities with the rest of the nation. And that's the reason uh, Puerto Rico wants to become a state, and I support Puerto Rico to become a state, uh, having the same provisions, the same tools, the same opportunities, but the same responsibilities as the rest uh, of the nation uh, Puerto Rico's crisis is due to this empowerment uh, and the lack of representation and equal treatment uh, due to our territorial condition. Even when I'm part of the committees in the House, I can vote on the floor. So I represent 3.4 million American citizens in Congress, but I can vote. Uh, most of the members represent 750,000 um, uh, constituents. 
so that can tell you a lot of the potential that Puerto Rico for, may have for entrepreneurship. Um, we should have the stability and, and that it involved to be and expand our potential. And as Thomas Heckner called statehood for Puerto Rico, a precondition to sound economic growth. I mean, having just the same level uh, would be a great opportunity. And uh, I will I look forward to, to work with you guys. And uh, I know there's a lot of issues that we may agree on, others that not. Uh, but I think Puerto Rican people are, uh, are eager to fix uh, their economy and, of course, stand by their own feet. So thank you. Stay seated, then down here for our discussion. Um, we'll keep this brief so that we can hopefully have a few times for audience questions. But I wanted to start off um, because the Congresswoman ended talking about the importance of the private sector and the businesses. And I'm curious um, if the board members here or others who have been looking into this on the island, what are the businesses telling you it is that they need that would help them to be able to attract more employees to give more jobs on the island? Because that's a crucial component, I think, is increasing that labor force participation rate. There are workers on the island, um, presumably willing to work, and yet the jobs aren't there for them. Um, I'd, I'd like to address that. I'm, I actually employ people on the island, and I, uh, mm -hmm. that's where I work uh, full-time. I'm in the insurance business. Um, I, in, in, due to my business, I am in constant uh, contact with multiple uh, sectors of the economy. Um, our, our, our book is well diversified, so I'm exposed to you know lots of different businesses in Puerto Rico. And um, what what businesses will tell you privately is that they they want um, the government to create the conditions that will allow them to uh, invest more money and to uh, hire more people. Um, in Puerto Rico, however, um, this is an institutional uh, situation, a problem that we have, is that the government, uh, whichever government, is so uh, predominant in the economy that um, folks are either concerned about uh, uh, becoming into conflict with the government, or they frankly do business with the government and uh, consequently are not um, uh, interested in engaging um, in, a, in a manner. I was, I was pointing out that those organizations that in theory are there to represent the interest of the private sector in Puerto Rico, um, in, in my view, uh, don't do a very good job. They are frankly... Um, not representing uh, those interests faithfully and um, are more uh, interested in um, uh, partnering with the government. And at times, you have to start um, asking of your government to do certain things. Um, you have to uh, be stronger than asking, frankly, to have them liberalize that which you know needs to be done. We've spoken you know, uh, extensively here about labor reform. And labor reform is just one of those uh, situations that uh, we need to get done in order to promote, uh, you know, private sector investment and to have people um, uh, hire more folks. So. Anyone else? Yeah. 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 Ye
Okay, well, um, another question that I wanted to bring up here is that there seems to be so much opposition, whether it's from the legislature or from the Puerto Rican people themselves. Um, I thought maybe, Javier, you could comment a little bit about this. Um, people know that there is a need for reform. There's a crisis going on. But why is there so much resistance, and what could help overcome that? I think that the if there is resistance, it's really about the construction of the Puerto Rico government. Um, the way I like to describe it is that um, in every state, I live in Georgia, so I have a governor that's elected, a lieutenant governor that's elected, a secretary of state that is elected, an attorney general that is elected. Um, and that provides an environment for folks to have to work together. They have uh, to compromise in many cases. Uh, you know, they have to look into, into the voters' eyes and say, here's sort of what I'm doing to try to work together. So, so when we think of Puerto Rico, we, sh we should keep in mind that when Congress ratified Puerto Rico's constitution in 1948, 1949, if my memory serves me right, the construction of the government of Puerto Rico does not have that broad consensus from a government point of view that has to be brought forward. So it, you know, a good example um, uh, could be education. Uh, we, the, 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 the education is run on a central level. The local folks are not electing a school board. You know, we would think that um, there's a county board or there's a city board that sort of looks at the into that process. So the folks in Puerto Rico have, I, I, I think I could venture to say that everyone alive in Puerto Rico today has, uh, that was born in Puerto Rico is still living there, has grown in a system where there's, there's just the government to do everything. Um, we, we could thank um, a gentleman last name Tugwell for that, who was the appointed governor of Puerto Rico, who decided that having a left wing, the people are, are kind of belong to the government. And I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone, but that's sort of the construction. That's what it feels like. If you're going to go start a job in Puerto Rico, you are desperately trying to stay there for just long enough so you become a permanent employee. I just don't know what that means uh, in any other jurisdiction. So I think, I think that the people, um, as they learn of other models, um, are very interested in doing that. When the private sector, you know, if you're a big company um, uh, that makes big things, could you base yourself in Puerto Rico or Nebraska? That becomes fairly easy to understand that you're probably going to go to Nebraska because the the system is very difficult to understand in some cases. So so I think I think that's really the underpinnings of a lot of the things that you're seeing, whether it's labor reform or some of the you know the, the power company. I, I when I moved to Georgia and I was seventeen years old, I wanted to know where which government office do I go to to get power. Well, I, they very quickly explained to me, they just call on the phone. There's this thing called Georgia Power that's a privately owned company, and they just send you, you know, they just give them your name and your address, and they turn on the power. I mean, that, that was amazing. And that was 33 years ago, right? So so that's, that's, um, that's a bit of an insight into what happens there. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
might add something. I'm not sure you can comment on this relevance, but many of the ill-advised policies from the viewpoint of getting a healthy economy uh, that Puerto Rico has adopted were adopted by almost all Latin American countries in the 1950s and even before that, but certainly by then. And Latin America went through two or more very bad decades as a result, and one by one uh, there was learning about what worked and what didn't. Uh, the leader <clears throat> on the economic front was in Chile, uh, and they, they had all kinds of things, they did things differently, and they had quite a different outcome very quickly. Uh, they had some political problems, but in the meantime, even when they were managing to get rid of that, they insisted on keeping the economic policies that had been undertaken. Things happened like they removed the restriction on firing workers. And lo and behold, employment exploded. Why? Because companies were no longer reluctant to take someone on because they could get rid of them. I could give a dozen other examples. One of the things, several people with whom I've talked, who visited Puerto Rico's comment to me has been, gosh, it's just like Latin America in the 1950s. Uh, and there's some truth to that, and there was something of that ideology, and much but not all of the rest of Latin America has gone, moved away from it. Some have distanced themselves more than others. Uh, but in some sense, Puerto Rico seems to have been left out of that. And I, in part, I blame the U.S. connection, because it's too easy to say the U.S. Congress should have done things, the Congress says the Puerto Rican should have done more, and I think there is something to this business of each expecting the other uh, to, to do a little bit of misunderstanding there that doesn't help a thing. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm just going to um, kind of get it to the next level on that thought, because you're absolutely right. Look, <coughs> we, lots of people in Puerto Rico have a Spanish surname. Let's not forget that everyone born in Puerto Rico is an Article Two citizen of the United States. They can, anyone born in Puerto Rico can be president of the United States. And that's important. We, we can't just say, you know, we, we are Congress, particularly Congress, say, well, that's, that's a problem in Puerto Rico. It is. You have something to do with it because let's not forget that on June 9th, 2016, the Supreme Court started down a slippery slope saying that there's no double jeopardy in Puerto Rico. I think that the quote is something like the federal, Puerto Rico and the federal government are not separate sovereigns for the purposes of the Fifth Amendment double, double jeopardy clause. That's a big deal. If we think about what that means for other things in Puerto Rico, um, Everything comes back to the doorsteps of Congress. We can't. It, that's we just can't uncouple it. You know, would Puerto, could Puerto Rico be a Singapore? Sure. The decision is made right here. Uh, could Puerto Rico do something different? Yeah, decision could be here. Could Puerto Rico have a three percent unemployment? Absolutely. The decision is made here. The, the government of Puerto Rico doesn't have all the tools that it needs to create those environment, that environment on its own. It's just, it's just not there. So, so we can't, um, it's, it, you know, I like to compare the um, tourism economy in the Dominican Republic to the one in Puerto Rico. It's, sure, is it thriving in the DR? Yeah. Is it th thriving in Puerto Rico, you know, before the hurricane? No. But it, it, could it do that on its own? That's the question. Could Puerto Rico, could the Puerto Rico government do it on its own? And at the end of the day, they, there are certain things they could do. Labor reform will be a big deal. 
right? Um, there could be lots of other things that they could do, but some of the major milestones that they will have to meet, that's here in Congress. Jose has something real quick to say, and then no. we'll wrap up with the final question. I, I, um, I agree that, uh, you know, of course, the, 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 the uh, territorial relationship with, that we have with Washington is obviously material uh, for multiple reasons. And I understand that there's, there's you know, it's material what Congress does. But I, I want to just touch on, and I, you, you did as well, Javier, that there are many things that we could be doing for ourselves. And we, that's, we, we on, on the board try to, uh, um, you know, talk about this. And um, we try to engage our political class, um, you know. And regardless of uh, political status, um, the pushback has been enormous. And, and, and there may be, I may be opposition to the ideological imposition, you know, for, of the board and whatnot. But, but there's no one championing um, things that would be material, material structural reforms that would help us do for ourselves. And there are things that we could do for ourselves that we have decided not to do. Thank you. I just want to, sure. Something, Javier originally was talking about, you know, the, the reluctance to embrace reforms on the island. And thinking in particular on the the reforms to the labor market and, the, and the, the regulations, the requirements that are imposed on employers. If you're, we have those sort of same debates here you know, on the mainland. I mean, a place like Florida or Texas requires almost nothing of employers beyond what is required by the, the federal government and the, the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. Alternately, you go to a place like California or Connecticut where they have certain requirements for, you know, that the employers must provide a little bit of sick leave or, or paid family leave, things like that. Wherever you stand in those debates in, in, on the mainland, you're very well aware that employers voluntarily, all the time, offer various forms of benefits to employees as an inducement to attract and retain and motivate employees. You know that the market works in this sense. You may have some difference of opinion, but you see it happening. If you're in Puerto Rico, I'm pulling numbers out of my head, so I may be a little off here. I think when you combine sick leave and, and paid vacation for the typical worker in, in the economy today, I think the mandatory amount that must be provided is somewhere between four and five weeks. No state provides anything like that. Mm -hmm. There is a mandatory Christmas bonus, which I think is around 6% of pay, so that's another week or two, uh, essentially, of benefits. You have restrictions on hours. You obviously have restrictions on dismissing employees. The Where I think this manifests itself in the political <coughs> culture is the man in the street, because this has gone on for so long, doesn't get the idea that an employer will ever offer them something voluntarily. They get the idea that the only way I get these things is if the government mandates it to happen. So if you if you say we're going to pull these back to give a little more flexibility to the labor market, people assume that means I'm going to get zero. And this is, I mean, it, it, it sounds a bit bad, but you know, if you, particularly post-Maria, there was a lot of, you know, 
press coverage of, you know, people living in the mainland don't understand anything about Puerto Rico. Well, obviously, a lot of that is true. At the same time, though, I think people living in Puerto Rico have not seen how the labor market works in the U.S., where employers are not villains. They're voluntarily offering things to help their employees. And yeah, I think part of that lack of recognition is because the regulations coming from the Puerto Rico government over time are so onerous that no employer is ever going to offer anything more than they're required to offer. And I think that, in a sense, it's not just inefficient, it sort of poisons the relationship between the employer and the employee. And that's not what you want for a thriving economy. Um, to wrap it up, I just wanted to kind of bring things back to the mainland here. Um, you, a lot of you are dealing with an economic and financial crisis in Puerto Rico, but what lessons can we learn here on the mainland for what's going on there? We certainly have plenty of federal debt. State and local governments have a lot of debt, up to $6 trillion in unfunded pension liabilities. Um, Andrew, you once said to me when you first became on the board, you said, I've learned that I don't want to be in this situation <laughs> because it's very difficult. Um, so what are some lessons that we could pick up here? I'll just start first because I was put on the board essentially because of my experience dealing with state and local government pensions. You know, you have you, you read the newspaper about Illinois or New Jersey or Connecticut or California, and um, Puerto Rico had those same problems, you know, but worse. Their their pensions weren't just underfunded; they were essentially zero fund. They they run out of money. When I came on the board, I looked back and I found you know actuarial memos from 1970 where the the actuary says, look, if you don't double your contributions or slow the growth of benefits, this thing is going to run out of money. And I criticize actuaries sometimes, but they actually had the date of running out pegged pretty accurately. And so, you know, there, it's... <laughs> And so there, you know, there's obviously lessons for what's going on in the mainland where they all have these, these public pension problems. But I think this, again, gets to a, a, a broader point where maybe I, I disagree with Javier a little bit, saying you know, that, that so much that goes on is, is dictated by the status issue and the history. And obviously a lot of it is. But so much of what I see going on in Puerto Rico is just garden variety government mismanagement that you can find anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the world. It's not, there's nothing unique about the history of Puerto Rico that caused them to overpromise in their pensions, to underfund. Every state does that. And so a lot of this is, is simply just trying to improve the quality of governance on the island so that, so that you're just running the government a little bit better, you know, irrespective of you know, where you come down on these, these larger political issues. Good news is how we don't disagree much. <laughs> I'll just say briefly that I, I got involved in the, 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 the most recent round of uh, Puerto Rico policymaking and, and PROMESA in particular in large part because I hope that Congress would work very, very hard on Puerto Rico and look at an economy that wasn't growing rapidly enough and one whose budget was on a fundamentally unsustainable trajectory and then maybe think, hey, we shouldn't do this. <laughs> We'll, we'll end up our panel discussion with that. Um, we are running a little bit over time. <laughs> but if there are one or two questions from the audience, we have some interns, I think, on both sides. Um, please just raise your hand and state your name and affiliation. I am Patrick Boylan uh, with Rack and Tour Creative. Um, my question is, what role can entrepreneurs entrepreneurs play in the economic recovery of Puerto Rico? What are you interested in? Anything. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of 
issues facing the island uh, from the infrastructure. Um, That's right. Absolutely, you'd be most welcome. We need, we, we need your investment, and we need you there. Um, depends on the sectors of the economy. We're involved. I mean, I'm uh, tourism doing doing very well, um, and of course, in light of um, uh, we're increasing construction and, and development on the coast, um, in light of the fact that uh, we had a material storm, and uh, insurance proceeds are coming in, aside from uh, certain funds that are uh, infrastructure spending. So. Those are sectors that might be of interest to you. Um, happy to talk to you afterwards if you want. So, it, look, it, wh what we're seeing sort of from the private sector, I use Rick as, a, as an example, but there are other folks that are looking at Puerto Rico as a source of amazing uh, human capital. Uh, look at the... Uh, a lot of the education, you know, the education system, University of Puerto Rico and some of the other colleges are graduating amazing folks. You know, they, they're pretty smart because they're running like the Mars program at NASA and apparently that's really complicated to get things out into, into Mars. And a lot of those folks uh, are coming from Puerto Rico. So I think, I think there's a unique opportunity for entrepreneur, for, for people to invest. Then the, the entrepreneurs, I think, will have to figure out a bit of what uh, Andrew was talking about how to navigate that regulatory framework so so they can thrive in that economy. But look, from an opportunity point of view, human capital in Puerto Rico is is really top notch. Thank you. Do we have one more question over here? Hi, um, I'm Christina Chen. I am a undergraduate student at Yale interning here or in DC for the summer um, and uh, the privatization of Prepper was briefly mentioned and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how you think that would impact Puerto Rico's energy infrastructure um, for the future. Thank you. Well, I'm not an energy expert, but uh, we have determined in uh, unison and we're aligned with the territorial, uh, with the government, that um, in light of what occurred and in light of what we had in place before, what um, what the government um, is going to do, and legislation was um, enacted recently, local legislation to move that issue forward, um, was the privatization. And I think uh, there's currently they're undergoing uh, market soundings as to what that might look like. Um, they don't know um, whether it'll be, you know, what what type of privatization will be entailed with regards to generation. And uh, the second component would be the concession of the transmission um, and, and distribution. And uh, it's all currently part of uh, an ongoing conversation with the private sector and with government and the multiple stakeholders, of course. Any deal will likely, not likely, will certainly um, have to uh, account with uh, the judge's blessing in light of the fact that uh, the the uh, power authority is under Title Three, which is uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's bankrupt. So, so that's that's the, that's what's currently undergoing. It's an it's an it's an experiment in undergoing, and uh, um, multiple stakeholders are involved. Thank you. Um, with that, I'm going to wrap up the questions here, but certainly feel free to come up and ask any of the panelists um, questions you have. And I just wanted to thank everyone so much for many of you making a long trip to come here today. This has been a great discussion.